0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, Episode 21, Season 2. Now, for those of you who are listening to Personalization Outbreak for the first time, we're always inviting influential leaders, disruptors from different sectors ranging from healthcare, corporate and education to have the toughest conversations about a particular sector's opportunities or opportunity gaps and how to solve for them. All of our podcasts are available at ageofpersonalization.com, where you'll also find videos, articles, and other resources in support of the Age of Personalization movement. Now, this week, we're going back to school to discuss the complexities and possibilities for higher education to transform itself in today's more personalized world. Now, our guest is Nancy Hubbard, Professor of Management and Dean of the College of Business at the University of Lynchburg. see Nancy is a best-selling author of several books on strategy, change management, and mergers and acquisitions. In fact, Nancy is also a DPhil from Oxford University. Now, at our Leadership in the Age of Personalization Consortium, we like to refer to Nancy as the holistic thinker. You see, Nancy, she really likes to propose integrated solutions by examining the big picture. In fact, today, Nancy will help us see the big picture in higher education by examining the complexity of an institutional system that has been around for so many years and why it faces so much resistance to change. Now, we'll discuss topics related to strategy, survival, and inclusion. Let's get started. welcome to the show nancy how are you doing today thank you so much for having me
1: i'm great thanks
0: wonderful so nancy come on let's get to it because what we both know is that you love making you know what you love doing you love doing what um i actually believe is so important and that is you love seeking discomfort so let's get to that why do most large institutions and or leaders struggle to see opportunities that are right in front of them?
1: I think probably the main reason is that they are stuck in a pattern of behavior that they think has been built up over time, and it's not their fault. I mean, it's businesses, higher education, healthcare has all been stuck in a pattern of behavior for hundreds of years, that this is how we do things. They haven't necessarily changed with technology, changed in uh, behaviors of, of their customers. And they, they're just stuck in this rut that this is how we do it. And what's been really interesting with the pandemic is a lot of that's been actually thrown out of the window. And we're examining things that we haven't really examined before and should have been examined.
0: So it's hard to solve for the right opportunities when you're indelibly steeped in standardization. Perfect. <laughs> so, Nancy, we've had this discussion uh, as as we've been exploring uh, the reinvention that not just higher education is going through, but also healthcare and corporate, um, but it's become crystal clear to me that uh, when we operate in the extremes of standardization and personalization, it's we hear a lot of noises. We we try to do a lot of things, but what we're ignoring is the importance of rebuilding a foundation that is fundamentally broken, how do we fix the foundation of industries and large institutions, especially at a time where, while we all believe that whether it's the forces of standardization and personalization are at play, and uh, we've gotten so comfortable with incrementalism that while we've been enjoying incrementalism, we've been breaking the foundation even more. What do we do about this?
2: Absolutely.
1: Part of the problem is, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody now is in firefighting mode. We've had to really scramble because we had a massive whole scale change thrust upon us, which people are uncomfortable with to begin with. And we're trying, we're just scrambling to stay still. But now we've actually been given a golden opportunity to really restructure the way we do things. And rather than build a foundation here where we've always been, we now have the opportunity and actually, society is telling us we don't want to be here. We want to be over here. Mm. And we've been had all of that impetus, and we've had so many different disruptors happen that have told us the foundation isn't where we were, where we go back to incrementalism. We need to profoundly change the way we do things. And we've had really 12 months of that. So, Nancy, based on that, I'm going
0: to share some statements with you, and then I want you to react to them. So, number one, the fiscal and cultural survival of academic institutions demands a new approach to leadership.
1: Correct. And, and we don't want this many colleges. I mean, this sounds terrible because there are going to be some really venerable, wonderful, historic institutions that are going to go. Um, but we, we have an oversupply, a glut of higher education. Because we we don't have that many students anymore that that need traditional higher education as we did when the baby boomers uh, were around and their kids were around. So we do we need to we need to lose some. We need to have uh, a change in in who we are delivering higher education to. Who is our customer? Customers are demanding different approaches, different delivery modalities, uh, different subject matter. Next
0: statement, leaders in higher ed must be eager to develop their abilities to be more agile, experimental, and empathetic?
1: It's not just leaders, but it starts with the leaders. Leaders need to be, fundamentally, they need to be trained to do this. They need to be rewarded and punished for not doing it uh, or doing it. We need to have accreditors that support this kind of behavior. Uh, which means also we need publishing mechanisms that also support this kind of behavior. If not, the institution simply will not exist. I feel sorry for leadership right now because all these other uh, forces are driving them back into the same foundational position and they all need
0: to change. Why do you think that they're going back to bad habits or maybe they didn't and they were just on pause? I mean, why are they going back? Why- why do you think that the, that we're at risk of the foundation being built with, with the wrong
1: mindset? So I will give you the cynical answer because, because it's provocative. Um, they all have skin in the game for going back to the way it was. Hmm. Everybody, everybody, they're comfortable there. They understand how it works. Uh, accreditors don't really want to change. Nobody likes to change. And you've got all these forces at work that are saying, well, we can't offer these kind of multidisciplinary majors because how do we accredit that? Our creditors don't let us do that. We can't get tenure because we can't publish in those kind of journals unless we take a, a tiny little sliver of information and publish in it. Uh, so you're really finding that, that big picture thinking, uh, big picture ideas are really being shut down by some of the, the forces at play that drive you into certain behaviors.
0: So if that's the case, then are we really trying to solve for student centricity? I mean, it seems to me that if we're going to rebuild any kind of foundation, we need to co-design the future with our students, shouldn't we? Heaven
1: forbid, they're our customers. They are our customers. And I, you know, I'm a marketing person, first and foremost. They are customer focused, do what they want. The number of times, not at my, fortunately, not at my current institution. But I've heard this, well, we can't do that because our accreditors don't like that. We can't get that accredited. Oh, you can't do this because um, the the business accrediting body won't accept that because it's a multidisciplinary approach. One of the most creative institutions I know is the African Leadership University. And part of it is they are pretty unique in Africa, which means they are reinventing stuff because there's no one who's telling them no. So when they talk about new majors, what they've said is customer focused. They they want to create the leaders of Africa. And so what they've said is the problems in Africa are poverty, famine, corruption, tourism is, a, is an opportunity, and water is a problem. So let's create majors that solve these problems. So they go to the students and say, here's a whole bucket of different courses you can take that will help you solve a problem rather than you're going to be a marketing major or you're going to be a, a this kind of major. It's a com- fundamentally different approach that I find very exciting. I think it's harder to do in the U.S. because we have, we have history, we have different accreditors, um, and, we, and we have different publishing mechanisms. And I, I think a lot of that really wants to push us back into the boxes that we all know and feel kind of comfortable in.
0: Well, Nancy, you just said the story of what is being discussed in healthcare. It's like, oh, the regulations won't allow for this or that. Well, we learned in healthcare that we quickly went to uh, telehealth, where the the insurance companies who didn't want to pay for telehealth in the past started paying for it. So, why do regulations, accreditations, old school standards get in the way of progress? I mean. Wasn't the pandemic
1: enough for us to push a little harder? I mean, where, where, where are we going here? And I, and I think, I think that's, that's a huge part of it. Also, I think that there has been a snobbery about the modality of how you deliver education. And the idea that you cannot have a meaningful, rich education via uh, virtu- a virtual world has simply flown out the window because we know it's, it's truly possible to do. But I think there's a degree of snobbery in that. And also, I I believe there's a degree of self-preservation, because if you are, you know, a small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere, um, you have to explain why students actually have to come live with you on your campus. And you get that revenue uh, in order to deliver your message. And actually, we figured out that that's not necessarily the case.
0: Nancy, how do you. I know maybe you weren't expecting this one, but how do you define inclusion because it seems to me that what we're talking about here is to help people understand that inclusion is not compliance and the fundamental understanding of inclusion um, is not exclusive to diversity. Why is inclusion becoming a growth strategy and how do you define inclusion? In fact, before you answer that question, sorry, Nancy, how do you define it
1: how do you think higher education defines it oh interesting so to me inclusion is giving everybody regardless of any way you want to categorize that human being the same opportunity for success and to make sure that they they all have the same opportunities and again some people may be starting at a disadvantage socioeconomically because of race, gender, ethnicity, so you want to make the playing field level for everybody, which means that you may have to cater to certain groups and give certain groups um, an extra place, a, a, a head start because they haven't had it in the past. But 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 just to make sure that everybody has the same opportunity for the same access for success. Now with higher ed, uh, we have. It systematically excluded large portions of the population because they have not been what we would call a traditional student. <clears throat> Either they uh, come from families where their parents didn't go to university and they're kind of excluded. Um, we've uh, And even spilling out a FAFSA form terrifies or intimidates people who've never experienced this themselves. Um, it can be because they're older and they didn't go to university between as an 18 to 22 year old. Uh, it could be that uh, their parents don't speak the, speak English as a native language. There are all sorts of people we have systematically excluded from the higher education piece, people that can't afford it, a traditional education. And now, all of a sudden, when all of us are, are scrambling and clawing each other, trying to get to this very small group of traditional students, which is shrinking every year and will will fall off the cliff in about four years, All of a sudden, the light bulb's gone on that there are millions, millions of non traditional students there who could benefit from higher education. And all of a sudden, the light bulb's gone on, and people are starting to acknowledge and include those populations. So, beyond that's
0: excellent, Nancy. Now,
1: beyond population
0: inclusion, what about institutional or uh, operational inclusion? I mean, can't we be more inclusive by understanding the broader perspectives of potential partners, uh, certain areas across the institution or within the institution, other sectors that we can converge with. I mean, doesn't inclusion go beyond just the individual?
1: Oh, without a doubt. Again, universities are designed in silos. They are designed in silos. I am in the College of Business and heaven forbid i go talk to my friends in health sciences and maybe co-design a degree for them or for one of their students and part of why i was brought to the university of lynchburg is that i had had a history of multidisciplinary major and minor development and that's what i really love doing students don't go to college and say i want to be a marketing major they say i want to be a doctor i want to do i want to be a broadcaster i want to be a journalist mm. and then what My job is to make sure they get the tools that helps them be very good at what they do, which is not just going to be biology. If you're a doctor, it's going to be chemistry. It's going to be psychology. It's heaven forbid if you run your own business, there's going to be some business in there. It's going to be sociology. It's going to be history. It's going to be understanding what really is going to make you good at what you do. And what I really love doing is creating multidisciplinary majors that help students address a problem rather than having a student walk into a marketing professor and say, I wanna be a marketing major. The professor should turn around and say, what do you wanna do with the rest of your life? Let me help you design your pathway. And it's a different approach. To me, that's a customer focused approach. So how, what stands in the way of making this, uh, this vision, this approach that you have a reality across higher ed? Everything, no, everything is set up to keep us in, in our lane. And I'll give you an example. I, I did my undergraduate degree uh, in the United States and I wanted to run an art museum. Mm-hmm. So I, that's I, what I thought I wanted to do with my life. So I did an art history degree and a, and a business degree. About halfway through, uh, I had my higher my institution say, well, you can't do that because uh, art history is in the College of Arts and Sciences and business is in the College of Business and you can't major across businesses, uh, across colleges. Why not? Why why is that such a problem? Hmm. And it's just, well, you just can't. So what? This, to this day, I still cannot understand why that's a problem. Now, I work in a place where that's perfectly acceptable. Hmm. And in fact, one of the first things I did there was we set up a, a minor in um, in arts administration. And so you could could now do this. So part of it, I think, is accreditation. Part of it is uh, bureaucracy. Part of it is that old foundation that's over here that says, well, we just don't do that. Uh, Part of it is mindset. Uh, Part of it is snobbery of of different people. College of Business professors are not known for playing well with their neighbors in the other disciplines. Um, They can be a bit snobby and a bit arrogant at times. And uh, and so I think all of that really uh, stands in the way of making these kind of multidisciplinary problem-solving, career-solving majors for students. Scott, what are you thinking right now?
0: Lots of stuff. <laughs> um, actually, uh, maybe just,
2: uh, if I could just engage on one, one, one point, um, the, the whole, essentially the customer-oriented model of, of the student, right? The customer-centric, student-centric, the, 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 the similar, the, basically the, put- the aggregation of those two concepts Well, I can definitely see where you're coming with that. And uh, and I I think um, um, from a business perspective and even a business school perspective, that definitely I can see how that has uh, has salience. But what I'm nervous about is I don't know that that's really our best metaphor. I'm, I'm nervous that a customer centric or customer centricity being just taken in as a substitute for the way we used to treat students is actually nothing but a different type of standardization. Um, what made me nervous was when we started talking about centricity, uh, student centricity, and they are customers. We do what they want. I started thinking, "Whoa, no, we don't! Like this isn't buying an apple. This is like, this is developed. This is this is some a slightly different product, if it is a product." And so my concern was that when we started talking about student centricity, there was an original conversation that was going towards. So there's going to be um, small schools in the middle of the country falling because we don't really have as much of a need of that, say, maybe liberal arts tradition that we had for the baby boomers. I would suggest the exact opposite to be maybe true. And I'm going to come back with a question on this. My thought is, you know, we tried this. We listened to the customers and they wanted professionalization. So we doubled down in all the professional schools. And you know what? All the people that are trying to hire our professional school students and not Fairfields, but just in general, yours and mine, they come back to us and say, well, you know what, we can teach them how to do that thing. Um, We just need them to know themselves and we need them to know the place in the world and we need them to know how to identify a problem, right, so that they can move on. So what made me happy is that by the time we sort of did that full circle with your conversation, as your idea kind of enveloped and, and grew, That we went straight back to you saying and so we need to take that person and make them uh, get them some philosophy and get them some business and get them so you went back towards that that full model so i would just be curious based on that from somebody not in the b school could you help me from a business school point of view understand from a business school's perspective right What might be the limitations of a customer-centric student model when we're thinking about how to run not just the business school, but all the schools? What what might be the limits? What do we have to watch out for? Because I think what I was worried about, I started to see bells go, and then all of a sudden you started talking like, oh, no, we're on the same page. Okay, it's just different language. So can you help me understand where do we need to watch when we're doing this customer centricity?
1: So... That's a that's a really great point. And and one of the things that I would say with business, business is really an amalgamation of about 10 different subjects. So uh, business, you can't do business without understanding. uh, You have to be quantitative. You have to be able to do statistics, but you have to understand psychology and sociology and English and and communication. Um, And if you don't understand history, you're really in trouble. So there are all these different uh, and the, soci- the sociology of, of work and things like that. So there are all sort of businesses, really an amalgamation of a bunch of different other uh, topics. Um, what I like to say with students is what what I think is a great education is you give people enough skills to get them their first job. But you give them this overall multidisciplinary, multifaceted. I'm a big believer in the liberal arts. Uh, I would say the liberal arts provides this career uh, knowledge that helps them on their career 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road. What I have learned in Excel uh, will be done in, f- in five years. They won't be using it anymore. It'll be figured, gone. Right. So, you know, I say the combination of a, and and this is my 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 elevator speech when I'm giving uh, when talking to students about teaching why business in a liberal arts college is so effective is we'll give you enough Excel to get you your first job. But the liberal arts that you get in this will get you your job 20 years from now. To
2: ask questions like, what is better than Excel that doesn't exist yet?
1: Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. So, so it's that combination in one, and, and business schools now are really focused on just, just the professionalization and the skills. And that's just really not going to help you. And when I look at my own education, I, did, I had a great undergraduate degree. I got to Oxford and Oxford never once asked me to name a fact. They, asked, they kept asking me why. I, and it's very uncomfortable as an, an American who goes through an American school system to actually have to be able to formulate an argument and then argue your point of view. Uh, it's, it's terrifying because our education system doesn't equip you to do that. It equips you to, to regurgitate facts rather than really understand the why behind
0: the facts. So, so on that note, Nancy, Going back to inclusion, what do you think the inclusion model needs to be with corporate America and B-Schools? Because in the past, I've gotten the sense that it's been the corporations defining what the curriculum should be, where now it's the higher education institution that should be helping define uh, what the curriculum should be for business. I mean, where's that
1: balance? It is, that's such a great question. Who is your ultimate customer and who is your ultimate end user? Hmm. And and they're different. So your end user is going to be the, the, you know, I talk about this with cars when I'm trying to explain this to a student is, (laughs) is I may be the, the end user of the car, um, or I may buy a car for my kid and they're the end user of the car. Who are you catering to? And Mm -hmm. I think the answer is you really need to look at both, Mm -hmm. but then you go back to how do I know what, what, the end user in terms of corporate America needs unless I'm having a really strong dialogue with them and co-developing and co-creating with them. And we don't do enough of that. I mean, we do. It's interesting on our MBA, we will create an MBA for a cohort. And we've, we've gone to some of our cohorts of, of companies and said, what do you want in an MBA? We know what we would offer normally in a vanilla MBA, but what do you want? And we've had, we've had a, a customer, uh, one, of our, one of our corporate partners who've said, we really want people to understand budget allocation, hmm. because that's really important for the way we uh, run our business. So we've developed classes specifically on budget allocation for that client. And so how how can I know what company, you know, Acme Acme wants unless I go ask Acme? And yep. And that's where you get into this partnership and collaboration point, which is you really should be co-developing this together. And so one of the things we're doing now is we're working on developing a program for students who are 25 and older, who there are 3 million in Virginia, people who have had some college education Hmm. at 25 and older, but who didn't finish their degrees. The first thing we did was go out and survey um, several thousand people uh, in that boat. And then we did focus groups. What do you want in an education? And it is profoundly different. What do I want now as a 30-year-old who's stuck in a job that I don't like? And I know that that next job is here, but I don't have, an assist, uh, don't have a bachelor's degree to get, to get it. And an 18-year-old who's going to college for the first time as a traditional student, they have different needs. So you can't take this, this product and package it for that one and say, that's what you need. Ask them what they need and then develop what they need. And we've talked to local businesses? What do they want in their their employees? So we've really tried to co-create this with uh, with our local community to find out exactly what they want. And what they want is they want more understanding of inclusion. They want more understanding of managing diverse populations. Uh, they want more understanding of human resource issues and how do you manage people? And that's what what is important to a 30-year-old who needs to get a promotion, wants to get a, a bachelor's degree to get a promotion, and an 18-year-old who, uh, who is, you know, coming to school as, as, a, you know, as, as, as a traditional student. I, can
2: I just add this yeah. one point to that 30-year-old piece, uh, Glenn? I think it's so perfect. It, it reminded me of a conversation I was having this week when we were just thinking about, um, you know, at, at Fairfield, you we were thinking about our general, we, we put in a new general education, a new core curriculum what we're, we're really proud of. And we started talking about assessing it in the metrics. And one issue that came up that's an opportunity for us that we think that, that we're gonna grab onto and, and, and incorporate is that 30 year old that you're talking about. Because what we're finding is that we don't it doesn't matter which school we talk to, engineering, whatever, nursing, business, see, the College of Arts and Sciences. When we talk to those students at say 24 versus 34, the way they talk about their general education or their core curriculum is a lot different. And of what they talk about in terms of what was most valuable in their Fairfield experience, it goes back to the core curriculum and their teachers when they ask what class and whatnot. So for me, I really love that thought that we need to think about, talk about the end user and the customer, that the customer isn't a 24 year old or 22 year old. It's a 50 year old person looking back on their career and saying, I'm so glad that I took that art history class because I'm not in art, but you know what? Da, 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 da. Anyway, I just really like that. I think that's a sharp thing that not most folks have been really thinking about. Because I, I mean, I know I wasn't.
0: So on that point, uh, and this has come up in recent discussions I've had with uh, chief strategy officers in, in large corporations, uh, Nancy, is how do we redesign our approach to strategy when we've always viewed people at the bottom of the totem pole when it now needs to be at the top. How would, what is your reaction to that? Because it kind of goes back to, and this is one of, the, one of my reactions was, boy, we, were, we didn't have any problem spending millions of dollars on our consumers, but just a few thousand our employees.
1: Well, and, and I had a colleague at, uh, at Oxford, uh, Keith Ruttle. And he was the senior partner at, at Anderson Consulting and then decided he was gonna go back and do his doctorate in strategy. And his strategic model was um, strategy is a combination, uh, is really, it, in, it, it's bound in your, in your culture. They're inextricably they're an linked. And culture is a combination of people and systems. And it's people's behaviors, which are modified by systems, but it's also the leadership that comes from those people. If you're not investing in one of those two, your whole strategy is going to fall over because it's out of balance. So really half of what you're looking at in terms of strategy should be the systems that give you what you want. And half of it should be looking at the people and their development, and the leadership that gives you what you want. And one of the things that I, that I find really fascinating, if you look at if strategy development, Japanese companies uh, take a far longer view of strategy than. Uh, than American and European companies. Their medium-term strategy, well, their their short-term strategy is about 10 years. Their medium-term strategy is about 50 years. And their long-term strategy is between 100 and 200 years. So you're saying, how on earth can you develop a strategy that's 200 years out because you know the technology hasn't been developed yet? And the only way to do that is investing in your people. Because if you invest in a culture, your people won't be there, obviously but the people that they've trained will be there and the people those people have trained and in and in, in inculcated in the culture will be there and that's how it lives on and that's how your strategy you breathe life into your strategy is through people the people develop the systems and it works together but the people and the stories and that's where the sociology comes in on all of this in organizations is is the 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 artifacts The 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 everything that goes into that is 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 people driven, and that's what will carry on in your strategy.
0: What you just eloquently said, Nancy, is this it's how do you um, both lead the best of standardization and personalization? So, again, goes back to the chicken and the egg. So who drives who creates the strategies and who designs what how the people should behave?
1: Well I, I am a big believer in core competencies and the resource based view of the firm. You know, I would love you know i when I was younger, I wanted to be a jockey. I'm five foot ten. There was no way on earth and i'm a, I'm a really pretty bad rider to begin with. So I could have wanted to be a jockey all my life, but I just did not have the attributes that would make me a good jockey. You got to figure out what you're good at and you got to figure out what makes you really unusually able to compete in certain markets if you're an organization um you know sony sony's uh, core competency is I, they take big stuff and make it little and when they start to move out of that lane it's really hard because that's really what they're good at and when you start to look at that um that that you have to really understand what you're good at before you can develop your strategy and if you're going to change strategy and try to move out of your core competency um, you've got to figure out how am I gonna do that? Am I gonna acquire it? Am I gonna acquire the people to do that? And it's and then you gotta have all the systems in place that support the consistency on that. So I'm a big, big believer in core competencies. Figure out what you're good at, have your strategy be driven into that. And if you're gonna move out of that lane, figure out how you're gonna do that.
0: So I'm gonna seek some discomfort right now because I'm really on this uh, <laughs> this this path of of seeking out more of it. But what I basically heard you say, Nancy, uh, Nancy, is that since the people don't know what gives them distinction and that unique competitive advantage, what well, we are relying on our brand to do that so that then we can hire the people who can execute the plan. And I know what you're saying, but I also believe that now we've reached a point where it's happening the other way around. The brands are losing their identity, their distinction, Because the consumer and the employee, which, by the way, are now becoming one of the same, want to contribute their individual identities to take the brand where it's never been before.
1: Absolutely. And and you look at that Google. Google is just a great example of that. You know, where you look at it, people want to, it's almost like crowdsourcing, but for, for brand, for usership. You know, and it's, it's this idea that I want to help co-create this, but then, but then how do you do branding in a world like that when everyone sees themselves and they, they view the brand through their own eyes. And when you're talking about fast moving consumer goods, like Coke or Pepsi or something like that, it's a lot easier uh, because everyone can say, you know, you, you, they, they can visualize themselves in the situation when you're talking about cars, it gets a little harder because, um. And if you look at the new, there's a new Lexus ad and they're talking about all these different people that have their passions. And it's a really eclectic mix of individuals. And then, but they all like the passion of this shared car. Um, and and they're trying to touch on that to say, everybody is an, an individual, but we share this common core competency of liking this. We like this in in, in a product. So I love what you said. So
0: back to co-creation with Corporations and the role that higher ed should be playing. How yeah. do you? How should B schools be teaching this? Because in the past, it's always been if you uh, focus on this curriculum that's all about the organization, not about the individual. We're asking to almost turn the curriculum upside down now, and this is what corporations are are struggling with, and because their employees want that but they don't know how to deliver on it.
1: How can there be a co-creation opportunity here, Nancy? It's expensive because what you're having to do is individually develop each person who's coming through uh, to to, to develop areas where they're weak and then build on areas where they're strong. So to me, that leads to a competency-based education. You, you need to be at this level you know, across the board, but you know, if you really want to excel, you have to be at this level. And you almost work on outcomes rather than, um, than, than you know, tick the boxes. If you can do this, congratulations, you get credit for that. And that moves again when you're, when you're looking at uh, credit for life experience, which universities hate. They hate the idea that someone could go out and in, an, in a real job outside of a university learn what we need to, you to pay us to teach you. And so I had this, uh, this young man that I taught at my previous university. After 9-11, he dropped out of university, went and, and uh, joined the army, did three tours in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan before he had a, uh, an altercation with an IED. And uh, he came back. In his job, he had run a $50 million supply chain for the army. And he had been the liaison with the village elders in, uh, in Afghanistan. So I'm teaching this guy, I'm making this kid take a supply chain course. Really? He could have taught the supply chain course. He knew more than any of us knew because he had done it. If you talk about learning outcomes and saying, if you can meet these outcomes, you've, you've met that, you get credit for that course. It makes so much more sense. But universities really fight that because it means we make less money. Because now we're saying, and it also makes us feel less valuable. Because you know, if someone doesn't need to go to a university to learn this; they can go out and learn this in the real world. And to be honest, could have taught the courts better than I could. So,
0: on that note, Nancy, as we get close to our close here, how how should colleges and universities redefine the ways they measure ROI?
1: Oh boy, you know, education profoundly. Needs to be turned on its head. It needs it needs to it it needs different sources of income, which needs means it needs to partner more with. It can't be tuition just tuition driven, because then then you're fighting for dollars. And what it really needs to to do is be creating strategic partnerships with with industry, uh, with the wider community to say what can we do to be a better partner in the community, mm-hmm. and then start to, to try to get some income sources from doing that. So that way, it alleviates part of this, this, let me demonstrate my self-worth through tuition dollars and survive through tuition dollars. I mean, the vast majority of institutions are driven by tuition dollars. Um, So we need to find a way to to redefine how we do that, to redefine our position in in, uh, the wider community. And I would say it's almost taking a space of a community college in that respect. Community colleges are, by definition, the college of the community. Uh, they should be really reactive to what the community needs in terms of, of of the delivery. And in our case, ours is a brilliant one. It does exactly that in our area. Um, but universities really need to start entering in that space too, and start saying, maybe going um, instead of um, you know finding finding a space where they can say i am I am an inherent part of this community. What does my community need me to provide them in terms of training, education. And that is, it's all your stakeholders. It's not just your students. It's all your students talk about inclusion. It's all of your students that feel they can get value from the institution. It's talking to your end users who are your, your, uh, your employers in the area and finding out really what they need and being able to provide that and being much more responsive rather than sitting as, you know, we call them that the sage on the stage, you know, you, you, you just That's that's gone. Those days are gone and they should be gone. Um, Before I ask for your final
0: comments, Scott, and then I'll come uh, and Nancy, you can, I'd love for you to react to what I'm about to say here, but what I've heard from you today is that higher ed needs to expand its ecosystem Mm -hmm. needs to significantly expand its ecosystem to feel more comfortable about why, it needs to change its model. You can disagree. What do you think?
1: Absolutely. The number of times I've heard faculty say, you know, we need to make a change. Oh, the faculty won't go for that. Excellent. Well, then the faculty are going to be unemployed and deservedly so in 10 years if they don't, they don't go for that, because that's it. we need to change. We just need to change. It's, the world has changed in the past 200 years. We need to change. I think what you've done is you've really
0: distilled the complexity of change that's required. Scott, what do you think as we close?
2: Um, on the meta level, I'm, I'm I I would like to just note that um, some of our word choices I think may be putting us into to per, potential conflict and disagreements down the line as a whole, right? Not as individuals, right? We're all on the same page here, but um, but. For example, it's very easy, and I've been hearing it time and time again, particularly when it comes to higher ed, less so when it comes to the C-suite and in terms of business leadership, Um, and that is shoulds, you need to, it's adversarial, and it's this kind of stuff, when we need to all back off, we're all in the same boat, and you don't need to do anything, you could do something. Mm-hmm. Right. You should should do something like I'm really nervous about the, the adversarial sort of nature of how this conversation could unfold as we actually activate it. And that it literally neutralizes. Um, the other thing that I'm a little a little bit nervous about, because what what you know, Nancy, you helped me to sort of understand um, some of the potential um, issues that I think are going to emerge in the next couple of years, if not tomorrow. Um, but it's also, for example, the, the term foundation. And I'm nervous about that because I think what we're doing is we're creating a slippery, slippery place for us to go right back into standardization and think that we've done something better. If we keep talking about build a foundation, you're right. And what you said, Nancy, about, yeah, but we're building in the same place. I agree. But I have, let's go even deeper. And actually, maybe not deeper. Let's not go in. We are not in a world where a foundation is relevant. Foundations are no longer relevant. You need much more adaptation. Stores that don't have brick and mortar are a little bit more agile. So maybe the rest of us need to forget about putting foundations into the ground and think about a whole new metaphor for what binds us. And I would put out there that what binds us, the foundation we need to work on, isn't sort of the traditional stuff. But if we are going to call it a foundation, maybe let's remember that when we say foundation, what we're really meaning in the age of personalization is mission, shared mission. Mm -hmm co-creative vision, And the last thing I'd like to just add here with uh, the uh, one more point is something that came up here today. And I can't wait to talk more to both of you about this. And it's about the metrics because it came up for a second, but it went right away. We cannot have this conversation and the shoulds and the coulds are going to become shoulds depending on the metrics. And we need to watch the metrics, not the foundations, right? The metrics are actually, and I just wrote this down for myself to not forget, we have to remember, metrics are not just numbers. They are a power structure in and of themselves. And so if you want to talk about a foundation that is needed to be fixed, if we need to actually rebuild a foundation and stay in standardization, it's going to be the metrics. And one way we can maybe get out of this strange loop and this like loop of, of, of meaning, right, this, this, this uh, I don't know what it is, this linguistic loop that we're in would possibly be to, to really Come back and, 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 and think more about, A, less adversarial terms when we're talking about opportunity, right? It's more inclusive, it's more inviting as opposed to the opposite. You're not good or you are welcome. That's, that's two different ways of saying the same thing. And then the last thing uh, as we move forward here is this problem-based approach that, that we're hearing. What I love is that the problem-based approach, I think, Nancy, you're helping me to see that that is really the sweet spot that brings places like the nursing school and the College of Arts and Sciences and, and, and community colleges and business schools into that same, uh, into that same spot. So sorry, I kind of went off for a little bit, but I really was thinking our language might be undermining the very things that are in our brains that we connect on, but that we haven't yet been able to recognize.
1: And you're absolutely right. And and the only thing I would say in that is, is in order to survive, and again, we act like it's good for every university to survive. It's not good for every university to survive, but in order to survive, some universities are going to have to change or they will perish. Other ones won't, they either have uh, very supportive alumni, they have very, lar- very large endowments, they have a lot more flexibility in how they go forward. Yeah. Ones that are the, these you know, rural liberal arts colleges without graduate schools, either you know it it does become really either change or or perish yeah and again but again it, it, i'm it, it we're i'm not saying it's good or bad for, i mean i feel horrible that the institution's going to go down but it, they are stuck in a position where they're in crisis mode and they either do need to change or they won't but at least then once you get into that stage a it's probably too late oh. But also, it's um, you've got everybody's attention, so change is possible.
0: Awesome, Nancy! I can't thank you enough. If there's anything to kind of play off what you just said, you're getting all of our attention. And <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you have done an extraordinarily uh, great job at helping us understand the complexities, the hope, and the opportunities uh, for higher ed and beyond. So Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. And as we always close, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's great to see you both. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day and remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.